This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, an internationally recognized scholar, award-winning poet, diplomat, senior Jungian psychoanalyst, and contadora, keeper of the old stories in the Latina tradition. CPE, as I call Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, or Dr. E to others, recorded Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype, at Sounds True, back in 1989. She recorded this audio program with us three years before the book ever reached the bookstores or even found its way into the hands of publishers. Now, Dr. E is launching her masterwork, over three decades in the writing, The Dangerous Old Woman, Myths and Stories of the Wise Woman Archetype, launching as an online event series at Sounds True, beginning on April 6th. Here's my conversation with CPE about the dangerous old woman. CPE, I want to begin by talking about something you call a psychology of women's giftedness. Yes. This idea that there needs to be a psychology of women's giftedness and how this undergirds both your previous work, Women Who Run With the Wolves, and now The Dangerous Old Woman. Talk a little bit about this. What, what, what do you mean, a psychology of women's giftedness? If you read you know, psychology for the last 100 years, you find, at least in the uh, psychology that's published, that there is an emphasis on pathology, psychopathology, an emphasis on what's wrong with everyone, <laughs> um, but very little said about the unique qualities of giftedness. Um, my premise in The Dangerous Old Woman, as in Women Who Run With the Wolves, is that all women are born gifted. Uh, I know that the culture um, wants to uh, sideline groups of people, I'll say that they really aren't gifted, but the culture is holding a list that does not particularly carry the uh, nuances of giftedness. Many people in school, in fact, are rewarded for learning to sit still, for instance, uh, rather than learning to imagine or unleashing their imagination, which is a talent, uh, surely handed down in families, sometimes jumping generations, but definitely handed down as part of the heritage and legacy of one's own bloodlines. So if psychology is normally about psychopathology, how does it change our view when we look at giftedness instead? I think it will be um, putting an emphasis on what is within the psyche that is generous of its own nature, the soul, in other words, that flows like a headwaters to the Amazon. Oh, it's not a little tributary, it's not a dammed, a river that is all backed up and stagnant behind a great big concrete wall. 
it is considered a natural state of being to flow and rush and eddy and to rise up into the sky just like a real river does when it's fully alive giftedness is not a quiescent experience it is experience of a golden fuse at the center of the psyche that gives impulses in every direction and those impulses are received by the brain uh, some people might call the ego and um, but they are um, they are seated in the soul and they come through the ego and if the ego is not damned the ego is not set aside as this is good and this is not good and you are good but you are not then those impulses or ideas are allowed to flow into actual manifestation and being in so many directions whether it's raising children or whether it's creating projects or inventing or painting or dancing or moving or simply being because there is a profound talent to being uh, when we've met people I'm sure you have, I have, uh, who have presence, what you call presence. They're, everything about them appears to be quiet, the way maybe a mountain range is quiet. And you see and feel the magnitude of their giftedness in that quiescence. But they are free, they are not damned, they are flowing. And the birthright, I believe, of all human beings is that exactly that they not be crimped and cramped, that they not be pushed into corners, that be not be told this is the only way or the only two ways or the only ten ways to do or to be or to act or to speak, that each person comes with their gifts. And the revelation of those gifts comes from trying them out. Now help me understand how your work with the dangerous old woman, your work on the dangerous old woman, reflects this viewpoint that all women are gifted? In the main, I would say it like this, that as you go along in life, decade after decade, you take on forms and even caricatures of the culture. You take on camouflage to hide your gifts so that hopefully no one will ridicule or scorn or in whatever way, hurt or damage what you're carrying. A lot of people live silently with their talents underground because they feel afraid to bring them forward. There comes a time in everyone's life, and I believe it comes as a result of experience after experience of not feeling that life is necessarily bad, but not feeling that life is good either. Feeling... Um, restricted or restrained and feeling at the same time one is made for something more that there's a birthright that's trying to come to the surface and so that time comes when I have to shed those camouflages I have to shed the things that have been given by culture that actually obstruct rather than allow the free flow of the creative life of the gifted woman this um, means separating from a you might say, an unobservant collective culture that uh, has the idea that things actually can live without soul. This is not true. Uh, soulfulness is one of the greatest talents that humans are born with. What do you mean by that, soulfulness? The ego tends to think in terms, maybe a little bit like raven, you know, or coyote, 
is the folk figure in a lot of stories who is always looking for the bright, shiny object or always looking to have pleasure of a certain venal kind or always looking to make money or always looking to be important. That is an ego structure and the reason those stories are often humorous stories and told in family groups is because we all know people like that and they're us. That's us. That's like Charlie Brown, we've met the enemy and it is us. <laughs> the ego is not a bad character, but it can be very undeveloped in that it continues to have appetites for things that are at odds with the soul's longing and yearning and the soul's ideas. The soul is different in that it seems to originate in eternity rather than in the moment of our life right this second and what it is we want or what the ego wants at this second. The soul has a much broader, deeper view of human life which also contains meaning so that, well, one could want to have pleasure but somehow has to have meaning beyond the ego satisfaction or has to be something that brightens the soul that makes the soul's little heart beat all the harder, that brings usefulness for others, that those kinds of things satisfy the soul, that the gift is being given, not just carrying it so that one could, for instance, show it off, but that the gift is actually given and put together in ways that other people are able to, you might say, be nourished by a person's gifts. So the dangerous old woman is a woman who, whose soulfulness is intact and whose gifts, I, I loved that image that you said, water pouring uh, like from some kind of fountainhead or, you know, rushing river. What makes her dangerous? The fact that she will not stop for cultural convention. The fact that she will not stop because of criticism, because of ridicule because of being devalued or discounted. She will not stop. It's, um, the way I put it to you is this way. The dangerous old woman goes where she wants to. She says what she wishes. And no one should try to stop her or else. She will have a ready answer for them. Uh, she's very clearly one of those who says, come with me, be with me, but if not, stand out of my way. I have a destiny to meet. So she is not cowed or, as we often have been when we're younger especially, of, of wanting to quote-unquote fit in. She wants to be appreciated and she wants to appreciate others, but she's not willing to amputate aspects of herself, of her gift in particular, or her gifts in order to be accepted or acceptable. So in our culture, as you know, we have images that are given to us on a daily basis about what being wise is about and also what being older is about. And I find most of them incredibly unsatisfactory. They don't jibe with the soul's idea of what is wisdom and what is giftedness and the purpose for both of those. So, for instance, um, you know, I'm so grateful for having a, how do you call it, remote control, you know, for the television. Every now and then I turn on the television and I forget 
that there are going to be commercials on the television for how sick, ill, and crippled up we all are going to become. That we have dry eye syndrome, or we have um, dry leg syndrome, or we have dry brain syndrome, or whatever it is that we have. And there's going to be a whole commercial about that. And what I find fascinating is that at the end of those commercials, it says, people who take this product may experience you know, losing their head. They may experience finding that their legs are gone the next morning when they wake up. They might experience that they will become <laughs> suddenly deaf. And you know, what's funny to me about that is that that is already the condition of most gifted people when they are a little bit younger and not yet wise enough. They have lost their legs. They have lost their hearing. They already are blind. And this has been done to them by the culture that says there's only one way. Or, or even more malignantly, there is no chance in heck that you are ever going to achieve whatever it is that you have had the vision for. That your chances are only threefold. Slim, fat, and none. That's already present in many, many gifted people. and the, But there comes this time where you've had it. The source of the soul is stronger than the babbling culture that keeps going, no, no, go this way, no, no, you can't go over there, no, no, you can't act that way, no, you can't do that, no, nobody's ever heard of anybody thinking the way you think, and so on and so forth. And I would add to that an observation that I will be speaking a great deal more about in the Dangerous Old Woman web event that we're going to do together. It's not only the culture that sets up concrete dams against people's gifts. It's the people themselves. It's the integration of cultural poison or parental poison or spousal poison or school poison that makes a person think the thoughts they're having are actually their own when in fact they're introjects, meaning that it's like having a hypodermic shot into of poison and your body finds it alien reacts to it and gets sick from it and is weakened by it and the psyche works that way too one aspect that's rarely spoken about is how women restrict other women and I'll say more about it in our webinar but for now I will just say this there is no one way to be wise there is no one way to be talented there is no one way to be gifted. There is no one way to be a woman or a man or a child. There is no one way to be a warrior. There is no one way to be an innocent person. There is no one way to be a lover or a loving person. There is no one way. And yet, I notice over my lifetime, and I'm now, you know, if you count zero to ten as your first decade, I'm in my seventh decade, almost halfway through it. And I've watched this phenomenon occur over and over that women tend to criticize and restrict other women about how they should look, how they should act, what kind of person they should go out with, what, what is a worthy entity to be with friendship-wise, who is not, what your hair should look like, what your face should, what you should never do, what you should always do. And different groups of women impose a stricture on other women. And I, as I was doing 
all of my learning and research, all my observations and writings on the dangerous old woman over the last 30 years, I notice more and more that when women become a certain age, they no longer talk about how you, you know, should pick a spouse of whatever, because most of them already have a liaison of one sort or another, or have decided that they don't want to have a liaison of one sort or another, or have dedicated them in themselves in other ways. But what I notice is they still want to tell each other how to dress, what lengths to wear their hair, whether they should color their hair or not, whether they should wear this kind of clothing or that kind of clothing, and that some of them actually form ridicule packs against different kinds of women who are their age in their peer group who don't conform to what they think is the way to be. This, I feel, has to stop. This is a... In the Dangerous Old Woman webinar, again, we're going to talk about Procrustes. Procrustes is an innkeeper who lives at the side of the road and he's a murderer. And no one who comes to his place escapes intact. They're either stretched out of shape or they are amputated. This phenomena is given to us by our culture to be a procrustes to other people as well as ourselves and to decide that this is the safest way of being, for instance, or this is the only way of being, or this is the only way I think is right, and therefore everyone else might be not quite right themselves. This is given by the culture, integrated as an introject into us. And in terms of wisdom, absolutely must be dismantled because wisdom is broad and deep, both. Uh, It has blinders that fall away, that expand our way of seeing and being, that examine everything we've been taught and told and see, does this make my life smaller or does this make my life larger? And if it makes my life smaller, why would I be carrying it now when I have more days behind me than I have precious days ahead of me? Now, CP, I'd like to ask you a personal question, if that's okay, which is this topic of women's giftedness and how women have been squished and and silenced and not allowed to fully express themselves is obviously deeply personal and deeply important to you, not only as something that you see in the world, but something that's clearly like a, like a torture carrying for, for your own reasons as well. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that and why this is so uh, deep and true in your heart as something that needs to be addressed head on. You know, I, I grew up um, in love with poetry, And the poets of my time were Marianne Moore, Gwendolyn Brooks, and the beat poets, um, Gregory Corso, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, Ellen Ginsberg. And they talked about the best minds of their generation being destroyed, whether it was by drugs, by alcohol, by too much intellectualism, by whatever it was. Also, of my generation were people who were elders then, like Ezra Pound, who literally, because of his um, beliefs, 
politically, was institutionalized as an insane person when in fact he was obviously a wild person, uh, obviously a man of great heart, but he didn't conform with the uh, society. Also, Francis Farmer was of that time, who also was institutionalized and done terrible damage to as a result of not believing or acting in a certain way. Also, was one of the Kennedy girls of John F. Kennedy's family, his sister, who was literally lobotomized. And she was said to have, now she is said to have something like um, attention deficit disorder or something of that nature, maybe even something like a little mania or a little depressive disorder that even back then was um, medicatable in order to uh, ease that person's uh, swings back and forth. So the, the, But also it's a very creative way of thinking when people are politically or religiously or spiritually inventing ideas for how people can all get along with each other. People are breaking out of the tiny little matchboxes they've been stuffed into or people like um, the Kennedy daughter were, they were wild. They loved life, but they were born at a time when Everybody was supposed to be seen and not heard, especially if they were female. So growing up in that atmosphere, I heard stories, saw stories all around me where the culture said, these people are not good, these people are bad, when in fact they seemed like the people who brought real life and livelihood to the idea that we are on earth as incredible, one-of-a-kind, precious human beings who are brought with gifts that are endless in their bounty and imagination and that they make and lift the soul up in more ways than could ever be imagined by corporate ego as it used to be which was essentially go exploit a whole group of people and get them all to work for you and then take the money that you earn from that and go do something good with it there was so much when I was growing up about that and then personally you know that, that I would say was the Milieu, the cultural milieu that I learned about when by the time I was a teenager. And then when I was a child, because I was a child of immigrants and refugees, I was seen, as many of us were, as not good material, was how I will put it. Uh, when I have gone back on, as an adult and spoken to and looked into records that were kept when I was a child. This is appalling to think that as young children it was decided that we were not intelligent enough, smart enough, that we were too slow, too stupid, too backward to be able to develop as creative beings. And so it was decided when we were young, before we were even in high school, that we would be put in a certain track that was not for further education. I was trained to be a typist. Uh, I had a choice of being a secretary or going to hairdressing school. I loved hairdressing school. (laughs) It's my first profession. Uh, I loved working with people. But what I found myself doing was telling them stories, listening to them, and trying to help them see in ways that were larger than the life that had been set before them as the only life. So... You know, I I like to joke around and say, I used to work on the outside of people's heads. Now I like to work on the inside of people's heads and hearts. And the issue of being thought less 
And incidentally, having all my people thought of as less and having no one ever imagine beyond what was at the end of the road for anybody unless they came from a certain kind of background, certain kind of parents, certain kind of racial group, certain kind of ethnic group. That seemed to me like a huge waste, like showers of sparks everywhere being doused in little young children. And in particular, I think in a certain way, amongst girls. The the women in high school, for instance, were intelligent, gifted, insightful, creative, and yet we're all being told we should somehow take on the habits of a person who didn't show above ground very much unless it was approved beforehand. So watching some of the best people of my generation be cut off at the ground level so they'll never grow above ground. You know, I grew up in an an orchard, an old orchard, and the orchard trees don't fruit if you cut their flowers off. If you prune their limbs uh, in the springtime when they already have those, you know, little white bumps on them, that those are buds for leaves and flowers that are going to come. And if you cut the limbs off, you know, and the, and the, or if you just take the flowers off, the fruit will never come the juicy, beautiful, warm fruit hand-picked that is so nourishing, oh, will never come. I watched time after time the children that I grew up with being channeled into the factory or into hard labor or into service when, in fact, they were carrying the lights of future life, of futurity inside of them. So I have always felt that seeing the punishments that would come to people who were young when they decided to dress differently, look differently, read differently, for instance. I mean, none of us were supposed to read James Baldwin, for heaven's sakes. None of us were supposed to read anything that wasn't, quote-unquote, pre-approved. And not only that, of course, I went to Catholic school, so we had the Pope far away in Rome who had a long list of books and films we were never supposed to see or read as well. And in that sense, um, taking the creative spirit and the heart of human beings who are so young and literally cutting all the flowers off or leaving just one little tiny flower at the top. Do you think, in a sense, CPE, that The Dangerous Old Woman as a work is a work of our time, meaning here in the 21st century, that it's something that culturally we might not have even been able to receive Previously, I do. I feel that there has never been a group of women who have walked the face of the earth that is as enormous as the group of women now who have capability, access to knowledge, ability to implement it. I feel that we are at a turning point that is huge, enormous, that women have refused for some time now to be put into marriages into relationships, into livelihoods, into spending their days defending themselves and instead have turned slowly to eke out places where they can create, where they can truly be alive, where they can develop their soul nature, where the ego learns to follow the soul rather than the other way around. I am positive because 
in part because my work is published in 36 languages. And I hear from people all over the world. And I hear what they're doing and what they're thinking. And it's very different in the last 10 years than it ever has been before, I think, across the world. Women have a sense that they are not alone. I think a great um, part of this has been the breaking down of some of the gatekeepers, whereas you could not write an op-ed piece about what you really thought unless the gatekeeper of your local or the national newspaper said, okay, we'll run it. Now there's the internet. You can say whatever you want. You can unleash your creative life in whichever, and there's ever so many ways of doing it in multimedia, on the internet, and off the internet. There are so many ways to communicate and let people know that you are carrying beauty into this world. And you don't have to wait for gatekeepers to say it's okay. However, old habits die hard. Fear of being scorned, fear of not being approved of, fear that one is not enough, fear that whatever I say it's already been said, fear of there's nothing new under the sun. Of course there is. There's something new under the sun, millions of things new under the sun, every moment of every day. But listening to those who have a much smaller view of life is still at issue because all of us were programmed in some way. And now we have, at some point in our life, we have a chance to run for daylight, as they say, to break through completely. And the image that I understand that I think is the preeminent image is the dangerous old woman because she goes where she wants to. She says what she wishes, what comes straight up out of her bones. And she is a loving, decent person who cares deeply about the life and the soul inside others and inside creatures, inside this earth. She also is a person who will not always mince words, who is not always predictable, who is absolutely not the doddering old woman with little teeny pin curls, who is a know-nothing. Those are caricatures that are shown on television. Neither is she the wise old woman sitting on top of the mountain who knows anything and everything. She is a being in process. And that, apparently, is the most dangerous thing of all. To not be pinned down to one form only, one idea only, one way only, but to respond to whatever is in front of you every single moment of every day. Now, I know in the whole body of work that is The Dangerous Old Woman that there are many, many, many stories and poems, but I'm wondering if you could share just one to give us a feeling about it right now, how the archetype of The Dangerous Old Woman operates inside of us. I'll tell you two. Okay. First of all, there was an image at the beginning of The Dangerous Old Woman The Dangerous Old Woman is a 700-page manuscript that finished over 30 years almost now, a period of time. And the image that I had early on when I first started working on this manuscript, I had, in my doctoral work, decided that the area that I wanted to specialize in was understanding what elderly people knew about life that had meaning. But they uh, had two criteria. 
that had to be over 70 years of age, which now, of course, seems very young <laughs> to me. <laughs> I mean, it feels very young. And they also had to not have been to college and may not have even been to high school. So I interviewed 70 people over age 70, who most of which did not have high school and definitely did not have college. And I talked to them about what mattered to them, what they learned over their lifetime. You know, some people were uh, wheelwrights. Some people were um, just people who had had truck farms, people who were... Uh, Seamer was a what you would call now, a, I think you still use the word hobo or tramp. He was an itinerant traveling man. Um, people came from many different walks of life, many ethnic backgrounds and racial backgrounds. And what I understood from them is it's a handmade life, that it is not a set of principles exactly. It is a eternal set of principles and a long, long list of attributes that you get to choose from to hand-make your own life in your own way that fits for your gifts your soul's longings and yearnings, your intellectual capacity, your ability to be and to love and to care for this world and for others and for yourself, too. So that was the beginning of the work that became eventually the dangerous old woman. As you might imagine, I fell in love many, many times with the old people. And my mantra during that time was, don't die, God, don't die, don't die, don't die, please don't die, I love you, don't die. And, and of course, they, they eventually, each and every one of them, flew off the planet. But what they imbued me with was the sanctity and the simpleness of their life according to what they thought. What, what they themselves thought. Like Seymour thought, the, the fellow who traveled on railroads and underneath the boxcars and sometimes in the boxcars, what meant everything to him was the camaraderie on the road and the blue sky overhead and the stars at night. And he, he was so imbued with all of that that it hurt him to be in the city with all its cacophony, with all its noises. And I felt like he was in his right mind that we have made so many adaptations to, to be all right with not even seeing the mantle of stars overnight that are constantly streaming down and blessing us, that we have become content to be light-poisoned, you might say, in the cities, but that he was carrying an essential wisdom and an essential sanity that we serve us to remember that our soul our souls will long for that too, in some respect, in some regard. And in order to be sane and to be whole and to be healthy, well, we would need our portion of that too, just like he did. So moving through the various, you might say, soul lives of elderly people who didn't have intellectual um, ways of saying things, it's just straightforward, down-to-earth, you know, down-in-the-dirt people, salt of the earth, led me then, as I went into my psychoanalytic training, to remember something I had seen in one of Jung's uh, books, 
that I thought was an apt metaphor for the Dangerous Old Woman book. And what I had seen was an image, an alchemical image that you know was in one of the collected works of uh, women who were turning into trees. And the, I believe there were seven of them, and they had um, the first woman was you know slender sapling you know with a couple leaves, and then the next one was a little bit thicker and you know twisted a little bit the bark you know of the tree as the tree grows and bark t- tends to turn, you know rotate, and more leaves and and then by the third, fourth, and fifth one you know large canopy, few flowers in the trees, limbs you know it's a beautiful trees, and then finally. The oldest tree, the oldest tree, a little bit, you know, this is a weazened looking, but in full flower, full flower, and all the trees characterized as women with with faces. And I thought, wow, that's it. That, that's it. We are young in spirit forever. I'll have a few blossoms, and are innocent in a way forever and vulnerable in a way forever. And then we also have inside of us, as we acquire more years, we have, you know, a more sturdy self, a more sense of self. We have broader spread of knowledge. We have deeper roots. We have more canopy. We have more thoughts, ideas that are pouring out of us. And then finally we go through all these stages. It's not like we leave one stage and and go into the next as we take all of them with us we become not a tree exactly we become a forest and finally at some point in our lives we begin to feel the potential of the seventh tree which is the beautifully laden flowering fruiting oldest woman tree and I was so happy about that. I wrote in my introduction, which is not called introduction, it's called First Words. I wrote about this image, and ah, I thought I was... So, and then when I... And it, it took it took a long time to parse out each chapter. <laughs> As you well know, 30 years is a long time. And when I came to doing footnotes, because as you know, in my work, I usually have almost a whole other book of footnotes that people can read at their leisure. Hopefully they will be as enlightened and entertained by the footnotes as they are by the content of the manuscript itself. Uh, I like to write that way because I think it's still, you know, in my signature style, stories within stories, within stories, within stories, and the footnotes are stories in and of themselves. So, Uh, As I was going to footnote this image, I went back to the collected works, which by then was, I don't know, 25 volumes of big black books, looking for the image, the alchemical drawing from long, long, long ago. And when I found it, I thought, I've made a horrible mistake. I thought, well, first I thought, I haven't found it yet, because this can't be the right drawing. And then as I looked through all the books again, I mean, literally, page by page, went through every single book. Some of those books are 500 pages, 600 pages long. No, it was the only image. It was the only alchemical image of women as trees. And what it showed was a young tree in full canopy. And as the trees became older, they lost their canopies, they lost their leaves. 
though were bent over until finally the very last tree was an old woman bent over with one leaf left atop her head and the saddest look you could imagine on her face. I thought, how could I have seen what I saw when in fact I didn't see what was on the page? And the only explanation that I can offer is that I saw what is rather than what people used to think about age and wisdom and women. That I saw what truly is true. That we gather more years and we gather together each stage of our life as a beautiful stage of growth but also withstanding storms. There's scars that come, there's no doubt. But that by the time we are in the final stage of life where wisdom becomes so possible and lots of things we've carried can come to flower now, finally at last, that we are full rather than weakened, rather than just a mere shred of what we once were, that we are at our strongest, our biggest, our brightest, our most beautiful. And yet I looked at the picture that was in the book in actuality and I said yes this too is true that in a culture where a person is raised there is sudden death there are death matches that go on throughout our lives but this is no ending point where we reduce to being one little leaf on top of our heads no no that's not it at all Absolutely not. That would be against everything the soul and the spirit believes. What is true is that might be a point in life where we have been knocked really hard and we've lost our innocence or we've lost our idea of how life could really be and we'll have to face a harsh reality and it brings us down and we feel juiceless and we feel empty and we feel like we can't possibly flower, we can't even leaf out. What's the use? But that is not the ending, not not even close to the ending point. The soul and the spirit come roaring back. They may come back the way that a spark throws itself onto dry wood and suddenly there's a glowing ember and then finally a flame. Or it might come roaring back all at once, like a river that punches against an old concrete dam and finally the dam gives way and the river flows again. It comes to different people in different ways at different times of our lives. But I am certain that the seven women trees who start with the young sapling, who has a few leaves, and by the time of mid-age has much more canopy and flowers, and that the final stage, the fullness of psyche, the fullness of development of the female psyche is to be in full flower and to be in full age, whatever your age is. And that that is the glorious ultimate that we're all rowing toward, that we're all growing toward. It seems significant, CPE, that in light of the previous comment that the dangerous old woman as a body of work might not have even been able to have been published until now, this time in our world, that you would remember the image in a different way than you actually saw it almost like that was part of the process of a new image coming into being. I'm curious what you think about that. Now, I, I, I have a... I didn't used to have 
but I do now have a definite sense that there is a time for things to come in their own time. I, Women Who Run With the Wolves was 20 years writing and sending it out 42 times before it was finally published. So for 20 years I wrote, and I thought the manuscript was done several times during that time, but I kept adding to it. And when it finally was published, it was published by a publisher that had already rejected it twice before in years previous. And I've often felt that the time was not right for it to be published at year 10 or year 15 or even year 18, that 20 was the right time. The right time culturally, but more than that in terms of morphic resonance, and I feel the right time for the dangerous old woman is right now. I think that uh, my ego, uh, speaking of ego versus soul, my ego will be more task-oriented and say, but wait, you know, you're done now, it should be... No, that's not the way it was meant. That's not the destiny of this manuscript. It's not my destiny either. This is my destiny, to be here with you now, to be with our listeners at the fireside with the dangerous old woman just in a few weeks' time here. And to be together and to deliver it the way I was given it, which is orally. You were given it that way, meaning you heard it, you received it. I heard it. I've heard it from so many sources. I heard it from actual living people and from who I will call angels. There is a conscious force that occurs in creative life that not many people are willing to talk about again because they often are afraid people will make fun of them or ridicule them and... I feel certainly old enough, uh, brave enough, well enough, I think, maybe it would be one way of saying it. But I would tell all the secrets I know. But I do not fear scorn and ridicule the way that most of us were taught to fear it when we were young and so cut our power in half or down to a quarter or two percent in order to try to protect it. Um, Part of that comes from having so much scar tissue now from all kinds of, you know, assailings and all sorts of criticisms and so on, all of my life, that it's almost, almost, not quite, but almost laughable now. If someone goes, oh, well, you know, I scorn what you have done. It's sort of like, oh, ha-ha, tickle me farther, you know, <laughs> make me laugh more. So this, this is the right time and this is the right way to bring the dangerous old woman into the world. Thanks, CPE. This concludes part one of our conversation. There's so much more to talk about, which we'll do in part two. Once again, Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes will be launching a new series on the dangerous old woman, myths and stories of the wise woman archetype, at SoundsTrue.com, a live event series, beginning on April 6th. And for more information, please check out SoundsTrue.com slash courses. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.